Hello, Void. Thank you for joining me. You are consuming episode four of the Nerdist Love podcast. My name is John Paul Hoss, and I will be your host for the next about 45 minutes. So we have a few changes, as you could have noticed already. Yeah, we have an intro music. There will be some new inter-segment music connections that we'll be doing. It's going to be pretty exciting. I dig into my old repository of music and I found this little song that I was a part of recording back back in high school and I decided, hey, it's about time I make this into something more useful than just you know, sitting in my storage space on my computer. So I decided to use it, cut it up to pieces and incorporated into the Nerdislav podcast. I am hoping that you're going to enjoy it as much as I do. It's been a lot of fun. Before we get into the material that I have prepared for today, I would also like to thank everyone from The Void who is actually listening. I checked the metrics a couple of days ago and I saw that there are people actually listening to this and I am just impressed and happy and incredibly thankful to reach out and connect with someone through the magic of the interwebs. So thank you. And I hope that you're still here. And if you're not, you know, no hard feelings, obviously. As I mentioned in my blog post and in the first episode, I'm not necessarily doing this for an audience. I'm just doing this for myself to have a little bit of creative fun. So today we will have a bunch of topics. I don't think there's going to be anything related to comics or manga or anything like that. We will mostly be talking about video games and the sporty stuff, but I am 100% certain you will have a lot of fun regardless. So without further ado, let's get rolling. So let us start with the gaming stuff, gaming news, gaming news and commentary that I am so keen to provide and that no one else really cares about. I have noticed early in the week a very interesting news coming up through the interwebs that Samsung, one of the lead producers of Solid State Drives, has announced that they will in fact be going into a 4-bit SSD production. This might not sound like much, but apparently what it's supposed to do is to increase the capacity of SSDs pretty drastically while also lowering the price. So while these days we do have two terabytes, four terabytes SSDs with the old technology, which I suppose is a three bit technology. Now the new stuff is supposed to really improve the cost per gigabyte ratio. Uh, And I think that's amazing because what I do and what a lot of people do in gaming is we have our SSD, which we use as a boot drive, maybe for one or two games that we play most often. And then the rest of the stuff, documents, photos, music gets tossed on a standard spinny hard drive. And the problem with spinny hard drives is that they are not the fastest thing around. I mean, they are getting faster. You can buy all of those SSHDs, which combine the standard spinny drive with an SSD buffer, but it's still not the same in terms of speed. I mean, even the crappier SSDs just blow standard spinny hard drives out of the water. So I think the prospect of having SSDs that are going to be cheap and will be able to give us a good price per gigabyte 
ratio is awesome. I mean, the prospect of having a terabyte, two terabyte SSD as a drive in my computer basically eliminates the whole need for two drives if you don't specifically want one drive for, say, games, other drive for media, etc., etc. Some people will still need that, and that's fine. But if you are just, you know, casual user, casual gamer even, being able to spend the, you know, say, $200 on a terabyte or two terabyte SSD would be stellar, whereas now you spend $200 on a 500 gig SSD or something like that, however the prices go up and down. So that is amazing. Now, if only someone did something about the crazy RAM prices these days, this is amazing. Like I was building a work computer out of a knack barebone a couple of weeks ago, and I needed 8 gigs of RAM, and I'm looking at the prices, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like I understand that graphics cards went through the roof like last winter, because of the uh, Bitcoin craze, on, of the cryptocurrency craze, but who the hell is buying up all the RAMs to make RAMs so freaking expensive? Just don't understand that at all. It's baffling to me, and I hope that by the time I'll have to rebuild my computer, which, fingers crossed, won't have to be in a while, I will not have to deal with those crazy prices. Now about the games that I've been playing. I've been playing mostly Witcher still, and a bit more of Magic Arena. I've been still running into the same kinds of problems in Magic Arena that I was talking about last time, so the matchmaking still seems to be rather unbalanced. That is a little bit sad. Now, with the next weekly update, or whatever you call it, weekly refresh, I don't know what it's called, uh, Wizards have introduced a new kind of casual thing, which is a 60 card singleton and this 60 card singleton format seems like it could be a lot of fun i just need to figure out how to build something really nice out of it it would be cool if this 60 card singleton was not just a 60 card singleton but actual brawl that would be awesome but i think the reason why this is happening is they are testing um, they are testing the opportunity of having that 60 card brawl format in the game and they are using these weekly casual fun deck building exercises to figure out how it plays out how it works so i'll see if i can build maybe a, something like adelie's wizard's prowess deck with singletons and make it work it could work i'm not saying it couldn't right now with access to all the cards in standard including amon cat and kaladesh then there is a lot of cards to put into that red-blue is that combination. I'm just not sure if it's going to be any competitive, but that is kind of the thing right now because the current standard has been around so long, it's been kind of solved. Yeah, we did have Magic 2019, the core set just released, but it doesn't seem to be shaking things up too much still, given how strong the Kaladesh block was in terms of cards and Amonkhet was pretty strong too. We are still dealing with a lot of cards from those decks that really just blow everything else out of water, at least a little bit. I mean, in red, we are still dealing with Hazoret, we are still dealing with Glorybringer, the Hazoret aggro, the aggro that incorporates Beaumont Couriers. It's 
just kind of boring. I mean, I'm trying to play a deck for fun and of course running into everyone who has net deck those best Hazoret combo decks or Hazoret aggro decks, I should say. It's just not a lot of fun. And I know that really this sounds like a winding tirade and it is kind of, but I wish it was a little more rewarding in terms of, oh, fun new decks, let's try things out. But I guess that's why we have those weekly brewers challenges in Arena, and that's always fun. And if, you know, online games bore you, you can always pick up your paper deck and grab a few friends and play. Not the most recent commander, um, though. Professor from the Tolarian Community College has done a review just yesterday, and he was really, really scathing of that product, of that product this year. So that seals it for me. I'm probably going to see if I can get a hold of Sahili Rai as the planeswalker that can be a commander and build something around her because I still think that she's a cool character. She is in the color identity that I particularly like. So I will see what I can do with her. Otherwise, you know, if you have commander decks, you have really no reason to buy the new 2018 product. And if you are just starting, see if you can find something that is from the past years. Last year's decks were really good. I mean, the Vampire deck is still floating around. The Dragon's deck was really good. I think the Wizard's deck in that block was good as well. So there is this set of choices that you could get a hold of. And by no means you should be paying above the MSRP on the most recent decks. If you have to pay above MSRP, which already is $40, see if you can get one of the older decks. It's going to be better in terms of the value proposition. Other games, as I mentioned, I've been playing was mostly Witcher. And I just love the game and I get immersed in it, exploring the world, going from places to places, not necessarily even just pursuing the main storyline, just solving the contracts, visiting all the little question marks on the map, figuring out what's there. Usually it's a monster nest, and so I you know, slaughter a bunch of neckers or what have you, what whatever is there, drowners. And because I've been Googling Witcher and reading up on the game a little bit, Google now starts suggesting on my phone news that relate to Witcher. And I noticed recently that... Henry Cavill, the guy who played Superman in the most recent movies, is a huge fan, and I think that's really amazing, for one. I think it's great that these big you know, Hollywood blockbuster stars are also gamers and can be open about being gamers. I think that's a lot of validation, and we are getting a lot of female celebrities admitting that they are gamers too. That helps alleviate the stigma that girls in particular face in the gaming community, which I think is ridiculous because we should all just enjoy games and have a good time and not worry about freaking detractors. But of course, females have it so much, so much worse. So it's great when we when we see mainstream stars in, in the industry say, oh yeah, I play video games, I play board games, I play tabletop games, you know, D&D, stuff like that. Now, back to the original topic. So Henry Calvill has mentioned that he really loves Witcher, right? And that he wouldn't be against being cast as Geralt of Rivia in the upcoming Netflix show that is slated, I believe, for 2020. 
And that got me thinking, and I was looking at his pictures, both in costume of Superman, right, and out of costume, just like wherever he's in casual or semi-casual wear. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at him like, oh, buddy, I don't know if you could really pull the Geralt of Rivia look. There is there is something about uh, Henry Cavill that just screams babyface to me, and I'm not sure if I could imagine him being in that Geralt of Rivia role. Now, there is value, of course, to be had in casting someone who's a huge fan of the franchise, but I also think you should cast someone, an actor who is able to really pull off the role. And I'm not sure if Cavill really has it. Now, am I saying that he should be just, like, kept away from Witcher completely? Nah, nah, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are other roles in the universe that I think he could easily fill. Now, we could imagine him, or at least I could easily imagine him playing Dandelion. You know, Dandelion would be a a great role for Cavill. I think he would do a great job. Longer hair, the smile, the baby-facedness, I think would work perfectly for him. And if we want to cast him as someone else even, you know, I could see him as Lambert. I could see him as Eskel, the other wolf school witchers i think lambert would be a good role for him eskel too just you know give him that badass scar on his face and he wouldn't even have to grow his hair he looks ready for it but as Geralt, mm, i'm not sure i'm not sure that that's the best casting call of course after i recorded the previous section i noticed on the internet that some talented artist has created a mock-up of Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia that looks really bloody awesome. So, shows how much I know, I guess. Looks pretty good. Still, a little bit concerned. I think that picture covers up a lot of that baby face with thick, bushy beard, and that is not really the original Geralt look. He has more of a stubble or, you know, shorter beard. So, maybe my original point still holds. I guess we'll have to see. Now let's go back to the original recording. Now, who else could that be then? Who else could play Witcher Geralt in the Netflix series? And there's been a lot of speculation, and I've been reading up on that a lot. And here is my two cents on some of the names that appear in a lot of those lists, like What Culture did one list, IGN did another, and a lot of the actors actually match up, which suggests that people are copying from one another. And hey, you know, IGN's recently been in some hot water over plagiarism, so hey. But who could be the actor, right? Let's let's think about it. So a couple of the names that keep uh, repeating are the following. So Matt Mickelson, he's an actor who played Hannibal Lecter in some of those recent TV series. And I think he would be good. He would be a good choice. I've seen some mock-ups, some... Photoshop images where they take Matt Mickelson's face into the Witcher armor, into the Witcher costume, and I think he would do really well. He has the right kind of face, I think. He has the looks, he has the rough around the edges aesthetic that I think Geralt of Rivia should have. And with little extra makeup, with a little, little extra work, you know, he of course needs those cat eye contacts. He would do a great job. I think he would fit the best, from the big names at least. But he's not the only one. We've been seeing names like Viggo Mortensen, right? The actor most famous for Aragorn from 
Lord of the Rings. And he would be good too, and he has experience playing long-haired, sword-wielding badasses. So why not? I mean, it's a little dif- more difficult with him because Vigo has in the past played a character that is somewhat similar to Geralt. I mean, Aragorn and Geralt are not the same, but it's the same general type of you know long-haired, sword-wielding badass. We might you know run into that inevitable comparison situation where you take those two roles and you say well yeah they're basically the same thing so Geralt in the new Witcher series is just a reskin of Aragorn and that is a little bit concerning and maybe that's why we shouldn't be looking at Viggo Mortensen as much. Nikolai Kostervaldau was thrown around a lot to the guy who plays Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones on HBO. Very good actor too, very talented. I'm also not sure if he fits the role particularly well. I would have to probably see some more mock-ups of him in the Witcher garb and see if he fits the bill as well as Mickelson does, for example. But he could be he could be good and he has of again experience playing kind of that medieval fantasy character. So very good, very good choice, maybe, as well. And he is talented. He's a great actor in Game of Thrones. I don't particularly enjoy the show, but he himself is really good. Kind of that mix of light and dark in Jamie Lannister, I think, is appropriate position for a character of Geralt of Rivia too. Plus, some of those half-Geralt, half-Nikolai Kostrvaldau pictures that crop up around the internet look pretty good in terms of visuals, so he would probably be able to pull off the look too. You know, the long-haired kind of dirty Jamie Lannister pictures. They look pretty well. Just bleach that hair and he's gonna be perfect. So, yeah, sure, why not? Like with the other names on any of the lists, really, we would need to see them in the costume proper. You know, with the bleach blonde wig, with the armor, with the swords... Maybe even surrounded by the other characters, you know, the main character or the core characters always kind of play with each other, they supplement each other. So what we would really want is see them all, you know, line up and compare how well they match with what we imagine them to be. You know, other names that have been thrown around, Gerard Butler, Travis Fimmel, those could also be good names. I mean, Gerard Butler has his role as Leonidas from 300 could be good. I'm not sure. I have a hard time imagining him as anyone else but the king kicking a Persian down a hole yelling, this is Sparta. And admittedly, that image of Geralt kicking a necker down a ledge yelling something to that extent would be really, really funny, but I'm not sure if we want those kinds of memes in these in these games. Although, again, those memes would be writing themselves. Gerald Butler or Gerard of Rivia, you know, this is something that people have been writing. This is something that IGN's been joking about. You know, those memes just write themselves, and it'll be interesting to see, of course. Travis Fimmel from Vikings as Ragnar Lothbrok, really good role as well. But again, you know, 
there is a role that this actor is so associated with that I have a hard time imagining them as someone else. So I don't know. And again, maybe that's good. You know, we have these actors who have played such high profile defining roles that we would want them to see in something else, something new. The comparisons are always going to be there, but maybe, you know, giving these actors a chance to shine outside and giving Witcher, the TV series, a star power cast that is respectful to the source material would be quite amazing. Now, there is one more name that I would like to throw into the mix, and this is going to be a little bit cringeworthy, maybe, especially if any of my listeners in the void are familiar with the Polish TV series creation, Vyajimin, or The Witcher. Yes, whatever Netflix is going to produce is not going to be the first time Witcher has appeared on TV or the silver screen in a cinema. The Polish filmmakers have naturally tried to recreate Sapkowski's source material in TV and with a little bit of a middling success. Now, the actor that was cast as Geralt of Rivia, Michal Zebrowski, was actually really good. I mean, the show itself was pretty bad. It was a low-budget thing with really clearly rubbery monsters. The scripts were sometimes really, really bad. Other times they were really good, though, and even for a low-budget show, the fight scenes, often the traditional fight scenes, you know, swords and axes kinds of fight scenes were pretty well choreographed. And Michal Zebrowski had that Witcher look, that Geralt of Rivia look, nailed down pretty well. Uh, He looked very much like you would imagine Geralt, albeit younger. And this was made back in the early 2000s. So the actor was about 20 years or so or 15 years younger than he is now. And that shows. Even in the later episodes where Geralt was supposed to be a little older, a little more ragged, there was still an aspect of baby-facedness to him. Now, Zebrowski is on the better side of 50. He is, I believe, 48 or 49 years old. He is a well-accomplished Polish actor who now, I think, really has the look down. He would look great in the role. And I think it would be awesome to kind of give a nod to the land of the source material, to give a nod to Poland and say, hey, we are going to take your actor, one of your most decorated contemporary actors, and we are going to cast him as the Witcher in the Netflix series as kind of a nod even to your earlier work. Even if they made like a joke of of the cuff joke somewhere in the series, poking fun at something that happened in the original one, something crazy, something silly, that the original show tried to work into the script, I think that would be awesome. Now, the reason why I'm a little skeptical is, number one, I have no idea how many of the script writers or casters of this Netflix show even know of Michal Zebrowski. They have to. I would be so surprised if they didn't know that there was another Witcher TV series. But what if also... Zebrowski is not particularly confident in speaking English, right? What if he has an accent? 
I have an accent. I am not a native English speaker, and it's a problem, you know. Sometimes people get a little confused, and it, this might be doubly worse by casting this actor into a lead role of a major TV series. I would love to see him there, but if the choice is casting someone like Mickelson who can pull it off, or casting someone like Jabrowski who can maybe pull off the looks but can't speak or cannot deliver the lines in an acceptable manner, that might be troublesome, that might be a little problematic. So who knows? We will see in a couple of years, I guess. Maybe we will see some leaks, some announcements in 2019. I think it would be reasonable to expect that at one of the Comic-Cons the Netflix crew will announce, okay, these are the actors of our main characters. This is the actor who plays Geralt. This is the actor who plays Yennefer. This is the actor who plays Dandelion. But until then, I think we'll just have to speculate. And hey, guys, if you are willing to shoot at my Twitter some suggestions who you think would be a good actor for Geralt or really for any characters in the Witcher universe, any characters that you would particularly like to see in the show, do that. And I'm more than happy to talk about it in the future editions of the Nerdislav podcast. In terms of other gaming news, we are quickly approaching the date of the release of the Enhanced Edition for Divinity Original Sin 2, and I'm super excited. I mean, think about it. The developers took a game that was already pretty good and basically rewrote and redid significant portions of the game to improve the narrative flow, to solve some problems with progression. I think that's amazing. And the fact that everyone who backed the game or who purchased the game is supposed to get this enhanced edition update for free is also great. So you're basically getting two games. You can play through the original and then you can play through the enhanced edition. So I can't wait. I can't wait to either play through one of the characters that they pre-made. I think they're all really amazing or just create one of my own and roll through the whole game with a cast of colorful companions. It's gonna be fabulous. So I'm really excited about that. In terms of releases, another interesting thing has released this past week, and that is the demo for Valkyria Chronicles 4. Valkyria Chronicles 4 is a game that I'm particularly excited about, cautiously excited, to be honest, though, because I loved Valkyria Chronicles 1, and I will from now on call it VC1, just because I don't want to get tangled up. So yeah, I loved VC1. It's a great game, touching, heartwarming, sometimes a little cringy, but overall fun anime fair. The gameplay is really solid, if only a little annoying for the game constantly pushing you to complete the missions as quickly as possible, kind of rushing the objectives and all. But yeah, the game overall is quite fun and enjoyable. I was really sad that we never got Valkyria Chronicles 3 in the West, and we have to rely on fan patches and fan translations to play that game, because VC3 was a little more gritty, darker take on that story. Unfortunately, it got released on a console that was effectively dead in the West. PSP was just such a 
haven for pirates that devs or eventually and publishers eventually gave up on publishing games for it. So I would I was really disappointed to be honest to never receive that game in the West to never get the chance to play it. So having another proper Valkyria Chronicles game in Valkyria Chronicles 4 is really promising. I am concerned a little bit because we are not getting the demo on PC. The demo is only out for the consoles and I would love to play the game on PC first before I sink more money into it. The original PC port of Valkyria Chronicles, which you can buy right now on Steam by the way, and really you should because the game is fabulous, ran really well, it ran solid 60, looked great and just all around wonderful port which is uncommon for console ports and especially console ports of Japanese games. Those often just mess things up, they might not be able to run at 60, they might be locked at like 30 which is gross. So the original VC was awesome. Now VC4 seems to be equally awesome, have the equal amount of cringiness. There are some pictures that are circulating around the internet of scenes from kind of a Hot Springs episode, which for the fans of that kind of stuff, yay, good for you. For me, I'm like, I'm not sure if I want Hot Springs gags in my kind of serious World War II alternative story universe setting, but you know, maybe it's gonna be good it's gonna be fun supposedly there is a story behind why we have semi-naked female protagonists running around it's just something that i would not necessarily expect it seems like the catering to specific audiences desires overtook somehow somewhat that central spirit of the game but as long as it's just on the side as long as it's optional i guess i have no problem with it i just wish it wasn't as kind of in your face or so it seems right now the internet tends to overblow things so I'm taking it with a grain of salt but it does feel like a lot of the stuff is kind of in your face confusingly so almost so no demo for us PC players we'll have to wait until the release to see if the game is worth purchasing or if it's hopelessly broken I would be really disappointed if it's hopelessly broken because I don't think I want to buy any of the major consoles and from what I understand it doesn't run Solid 60 on the Switch which is the only console that I would consider purchasing at this point. So yeah, not sure if I will just skip on DC4 altogether, particularly if this game is not what I would love it to be, what I think it could be. I mean we have evidence that Valkyria Chronicles can run great on a PC. So if Sega will screw this up, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is gonna be satisfying, at least to me. In other news, Discord, the famous online communications platform that you can use to chat while you're playing games and you can chat for with fans of your shared interests has decided to release its own game store its own virtual distribution and I'm looking at this I'm thinking like okay great you know um, let's see how this does 
more competition for Steam is always good. But I'm not sure how many people will actually use it. Right now, the lineup of games is not massive, and we are seeing mostly indies just populating that marketplace. And I'm thinking, you know, how many people will buy these games on this Discord store when they can purchase them on Steam or other distribution? And yeah, Steam doesn't offer what Discord offers, which is a subscription which I think goes to like $50 a year for a certain amount of games. But that's not altogether new either. I mean, Origin from EA has done this for a while. They're changing and adding tiers to their Origin Access. And I've been subscribing to Origin Access, and I think it's been great. That was the way I could play through the entirety of Mass Effect trilogy a couple of times over. And I think I got my money's worth, and I'm getting my money's worth. There is a constant stream of games being put into the origin access a large amount of diverse titles from triple a blockbusters from a couple years ago to more niche indie titles and origin is actually a really good store they've done pretty well for themselves even despite their original growing pains where some issues haven't been ironed out early on but now the store runs really well they have pretty good reimbursement and refund policy better than steam to be perfectly honest and the fact that you can play games that are not just ea games there is a i think a good proposition to even at least consider it so i don't think discord itself which is going to have that subscription material in it is reinventing the wheel i'm just concerned that it's it's another attempt to have this virtual distribution we already i feel have this kind of overcrowding almost of virtual distribution at least on the pc market you have steam you have ea origin you have gog so those are three major players already and now discord is trying to kind of weasel itself in and i'm looking at this situation i'm thinking hmm not sure I'm not sure if you folks are going to succeed. I mean, I don't particularly use Discord a lot, so maybe I'm outside of the target demographic, and if so, that's fine. But maybe uh, we need to consider what's going to happen and which stores will kind of move forward and which stores are going to stay behind. Of course, I forgot Battle.net, right? There is also Blizzard's Battle.net that has all the World of Warcraft, Starcraft, Hearthstone, Overwatch, and now all the Activision games like Destiny and some of the Call of Duty titles too are going to be showing up. So another store I think is good just for the sake of competition but i wouldn't be surprised if we see discord kind of try it for a for a while and then maybe fold on it i'm not sure if it has the longevity that the discord community thinks it does we'll see it's just my two cents of a grumpy old man since i mentioned ea i might as well talk about the last point of gaming news and give my comment on it too and that is that EA thinks that in a couple of years, consoles will kind of go the way of the dodo and everything that we will see is going to be through online streaming. The same way we stream TV shows and movies nowadays, we will stream games. And I'm of two minds of that. I live in the United States right now, 
in an area that has relatively decent internet. But that's not the everywhere in the United States. And not everywhere around the world has the capacity to be connected to a good, solid internet of like 100, 200 megabits or, or even like one gigabit internet that would be, you know, amazing if everyone had the chance, but that's not the case. And assuming that instead of people buying consoles or people buying PCs that are actually powerful enough to play games, they will just buy a PC that can stream a game. I'm not sure if that's reasonable enough thing to consider. I mean, EA and other devs are trying to convince us that single-player games are dead or RTSs are dead or this is dead or that is dead. And they don't actually look at the market and think, okay, what do the consumers really want? What do we want in terms of what we want to play and how we want to play it? I personally wouldn't necessarily mind having the ability to stream a game provided there is zero lag and the game looks fabulous. I mean, if I can play, say, Witcher on Ultra with all the hair work stuff on on my little streaming device with zero lag, with zero delay, and have the saves that I can then transfer maybe even to my own game, that would be awesome, right? That's good. But just saying, oh yeah, and everything's gonna be streamed, yeah, that is that sounds like a like the kind of fad that will just come biting you in the butt in a couple of years if that's something that you really want to focus on. I mean, for this whole streaming service to work, you really would need to improve the internet infrastructure in major gaming markets around the world, like the United States. United States really doesn't have places with good internet. Australia too. Australia has been getting better and better internet, but it's been struggling for a long time. And I'm still not sure if they would be able to support this kind of high bandwidth streaming service using their internet infrastructure. So yeah, I mean, EA, good thinking that you would want to maybe eliminate some of that startup cost. I mean, if you can just take an old school netbook and connect it to a really high speed internet and play games on your TV that way, that would be awesome. But I am skeptical again about the promise. And really, I just like the idea of having a nice computer tower humming next to me as I play Witcher or as I play any game really and enjoy the content that I want to consume. Of course, you can always think about what happens when the internet dies, right? There is an outage. You cannot play then. Whereas if there is an internet outage, but not electricity outage, I can still play my games. You know, I can still boot up anything. You know, I can play on my DS or I can play on my computer, whatever game I want. If I stream everything, I can't do that. So those are just kind of the logistic issues that EA should think about and really maybe let's just not reinvent things too much. NVIDIA already has their shield streaming service, so maybe there are steps to be taken in that direction and it could work. But how about we focus instead on putting out games that people want to play, putting out games that are quality, you know, not bundling tons and tons of DLC, not bundling tons and tons of microtransactions. That I think is a much better direction that the gaming industry should 
mistake rather than thinking about how we can reinvent and recreate the gaming experiences in a way that maybe few people are actually asking for. So that's it for the gaming portion of the podcast for today. And I will be right back with the sporty stuff. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Nerdy Slav podcast with John Paul Hoss. And we're back and you are listening still to the Nerdy Slav podcast with John Paul Hoss. And we will spend the last minutes of the podcast talking about some sporty stuff. Mostly about wrestling, WWE and NJPW and some cycling as well, where I'm going to flaunt my feathers a little bit and tell you how right I was. So let's start with the wrestling stuff. Surprise, surprise, WWE keeps burying Finn Balor. They even gave him a new fun, in quotation marks, nickname, the Tiny Irishman. Oh my goodness, really? Like, Tiny Irishman? Why? You know, I'm gonna echo Jules from what culture and I'll say that this is complete bullshit because really you know you have this really extremely talented guy who is over with the fans who can pull off some really hard wrestling moves like the double stomp without caving people's chests in without hurting people seriously and you just bury him you keep burying him under this nonsensical booking with Baron Corbin under this crazy commentary where a star that has the potential to be over like hell is not over because you just call him the tiny Irishman. I I just don't understand what is going on. You know, at this point, I think maybe if they move in either to 205 Live or heck, even back to NXT... I think that would be so much better. Just give Finn more interesting and high-profile stuff to do. This guy was responsible or is really responsible for creating one of the most popular stables in the modern, you know, post-2010 wrestling. I mean, he is responsible for the Bullet Club. And you are treating him like complete tosh. He has a potential to be both a really endearing babyface and a scary and, you know, calculating, cocky heel. So do it, you know, explore what he can do. Don't make him just walk out there every week and smile like a dumbass. It just doesn't make sense. Make him into the threat he's supposed to be. He was the first Universal Champion. He never got his rematch. And maybe WWE is worried about, oh, he's going to get injured. He's going to get injured. He's going to be on the shelf. But how about your other stars? I mean, Seth Rollins was out for a while. Dean Ambrose is out for a while. You will probably put them into programs that are you know high profile relatively soon. Think about how many times Undertaker was injured and he was always back in the main title picture. And you have Finn Balor, and instead of pushing him, you kind of pull the plug on him. You decide to just bury him in mid-card. And if that's where he's going to be satisfied, and he's going to get a fat paycheck, he's going to go out there and perform. Sometimes he can get a shot at like a mid-level mid-card title, like the United States Championship or the Intercontinental Championship. I guess that's fine. 
But really, I think he deserves to be up there with the big names, with Seth, with Drew McIntyre, people who are going to be the main eventers, and he should be a main eventer too. No question about that. Now, a person who is a main eventer and I don't think should be yet is Ronda Rousey. Now, let's put aside all the nasty stuff that Ronda Rousey said in the past and let's just focus, just for this once, purely on her in-ring ability. And Ronda was wrestling her first television match on Raw this past Monday against Alicia Fox. And honestly, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of Alicia Fox, but I will give her all the credit in the world for that match. I am impressed that she didn't just walk out of the match altogether. Because what Ronda Rousey did in that match was so incredibly stiff. The punches looked much more stiff than they needed to, but that's okay. You know, punches can be finagled around. But the throws, the -the over-the-shoulder, one-hand throws, and the submission all looked incredibly painful, incredibly real, which I guess is good, but I don't think they were real in, like, they look real, but they were actually real. What we see here with Ronda is the fact that she doesn't have the pro wrestling training that's similar to other people. Like, she didn't go through the amateur wrestling kind of college or high school wrestling stuff, so she doesn't know maybe how to hold some holds and, like, pull back on some of the intensity. Her MMA career, in this case, really materializes in full swing and I think that that's really dangerous I don't think Ronda Rousey is ready for the main event because I'm afraid that she's gonna hurt someone legitimately maybe unintentionally she's just gonna dislocate someone's shoulder she's gonna dislocate someone's elbow she's gonna hurt someone really really bad because she doesn't necessarily have all the skills think about Shayna Baszler I mean Shayna Baszler at first when she got to NXT Again, you know, she's an ex-MMA fighter. She seemed afraid of hurting people, so she was holding back. She really was overly safe almost. You could see in her early matches how she pulls back, how she doesn't go full speed into the moves, just because she realized, I have this kind of background that forces me to really hurt people. Whereas here... This is all kind of the land of make-believe, and I cannot knock a person out within the first 30, 40 seconds of the match. Whereas Ronda just goes all in and starts throwing her judo over-the-shoulder throws in a fashion that would not get lost in an MMA ring. So again, mad props to Alicia Fox for not just throwing the towel in and saying screw this I'm out because I would definitely do that if I were her and this really underprepared star walks in in Ronda's defense she has had one of the best matches of the year so far at Wrestlemania but there was a tag team where Triple H and Kurt Angle and Stephanie McMahon kind of all worked together with Ronda to cover up for each other's weaknesses but when she goes one-on-one with Alexa Bliss at SummerSlam, this is not gonna be pretty, and I'm afraid at least that there are gonna be some botches along the way. 
and really, I know that this is unreasonable. You cannot throw your best star into NXT first, but I think that Ronda would have really benefited through going through that NXT gauntlet for six months, nine months, a year before emerging on the main roster. But you can't do that with a star of Rousey's character. It's just not possible. It's not something that is going to happen. Let's move to Japan. So NJPW has been having its G1 tournament, one of the best tournaments in wrestling these days. And it's been really, really fun. And G1 was just really straight up badass. As a relatively new fan, I was really sad that Kota Ibushi didn't win the tournament. Haha, <laughs> spoilers, now you know. But I guess Tanahashi deserves the win and he worked really hard. The match was amazing. So many great moves that baby-facedness of Tanahashi signed, uh, shone through. I think it's going to be amazing to see where ne- the stories in NJPW go next. And again, you know, NJPW doesn't seem to be that big on the story side of things. Because if they were, they would probably try to weave something, you know, golden lovers against each other, Ibushi versus Omega. We'll see if Omega is still a champion by the time he has to defend against the winner of the G1. Because he might go to WWE. There are some rumors that suggest that that might be happening. I hope, honestly, that he doesn't go because... Omega seems to have that kind of creative freedom in NJPW and on the indie circus in general that he really benefits from. So we'll see. But I think it's going to be great regardless in the next months to keep attention on NJPW and on the other indies. I mean, All In is coming up in early September. That's going to be great. Chris Jericho has his cruise with wrestling and music coming up later in the year as well. I wish I could attend, but oh my goodness, it's so expensive. You know, cruises also scare the shit out of me because I don't want to spend the whole cruise on a on a toilet dealing with some sort of norovirus infection, which seems to happen almost all the time with these kinds of cruises. So yeah, I think the beautiful nature of the indie circuit is that so many things are not curtailed by that tight corporate control that WWE has. That's just what I love about the indies. I mean, where else would you have Cody Rhodes walking out and calling someone a ripoff of Kerry Sane? I think that was so funny when Cody calls Juice out for, you know, being a pirate and saying, hey, there is only space for one pirate in this industry. And, you know, I love Kairi Sane and I think she deserves a lot more opportunity than she's getting in NXT right now. But that was just funny. That was just straight up funny, hilarious. Cody, as always, slays it on the mic. And, you know, even with the mainstream wrestling product, WWE has been putting out some good content with NXT, with 205 Live, and with the Mae Young Classic. And... You know, they make me really want to resubscribe to their streaming service because I want to see that stuff. I want to see that stuff outside of looking at summaries on the internet, looking at cut down videos of the best stuff from last night's show. I really want to see what's been happening on the show itself. I have, for this reason, 
stayed away from spoilers from the classic just because I want to see that performance eventually when I resubscribe. So don't you dare to spoil anything for me, Void. I will be really mad if you do. And now with wrestling out of the way, let us wrap up with talking about cycling. So last week I was talking about Tour of Poland and how that race is really kind of near and dear to me because it's a race in a Slavic country and it's one of the high profile races. And we got some pretty good field of racers not necessarily as good as the San Sebastian, of course, but we still got some big names, Kwiatkowski, Pino and Bennett, and even Fabio Aru was there. I forgot about that completely. Now, guess who won? I called it. Kwiatkowski nailed it and won, which, you know, I think he really deserves that win. He's been such a hard worker for his team that he deserves his own accolade, his own victory in his home country's race. I think that was great. Although he did have to contend with some stiff challenge from Simon Yates and even Thibaut Pinot. They both really challenged him and Bennett too. I mean, all three, you know, Kwiatkowski, Yates, Pinot and Bennett all fit in 25 seconds in the final classification. And the whole top 10 fits in 45 seconds from each other. That's not necessarily uncommon for these shorter week-long races, but it's amazing how really closely matched the field was and that really Kwiatkowski had to be concerned on the last day with Simon Yates just going at it and trying to really win. So great race all around, really, really satisfying. Also, just as I'm recording this podcast, it's the last day of the cycling championships of Europe. The European championships have wrapped up today and surprise here too, because unexpectedly, Trentin wins. I was really quite impressed. You could even stream the whole competition on the internet. So I watched the last couple of uh, kilometers just to see what's going on. And there was a crash that affected who was able to get to that final sprint, but Trentin wins. I didn't expect that. I thought either Sagan or Van Avermet is going to make it, but Sagan pulls out and Van Avermet, I didn't notice whether he pulled out or not, or he just didn't make it. He wasn't in the contention. Similarly, uh, Czech rider Zdeněk Štybar was saying, oh, I really am ready. I really want to go for the win. Yeah, he was nowhere near. So I wonder what happened because I didn't see the whole race. Um, I need to go back and rewatch it and revisit the reports. And I'll talk maybe about it more la uh, next week. But pretty surprising result. But congratulations to the Italians. They've done really well on the whole cycling championship. Both the female race and the men's race w was won by Italian riders. So the Italian team... Good job on the road. You you folks slayed it. Great. We are also just a few weeks removed from Vuelta. So as that's happening, as we are getting closer and as the teams start announcing their lineups, I will maybe go lineup by lineup and then evaluate the teams and talk about, oh, this team has a good lineup. This team has a meh lineup. This team is a sleeper. This team is a bit of a disappointment. I would love to see how 
the race goes because the weather is probably going to be rather unforgiving. It's going to be really hot. And we've seen at Tour of Portugal how the weather can really mess up the cyclists. So something to look forward to. That is all for today, really. I thank you again all for listening. If you want more of this content, you can always find it at the website www.nerdislav.com. You can find me at Twitter and you can interact with me at Twitter at Nerdislav. And all that's left to say right now is cheers void and I will talk to you again soon.